Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. We all know the rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Lizzie Borden is arguably the most infamous case of parasite although she was acquitted of the murders of her father and stepmother. But Lizzie was by no means the last time a daughter killed her father or had her father killed. Today's perpetrators are far from a modern-day Lizzie Borden, but the acts were no less horrific. Okay, on to the show. On October 31, 1999, Clarence Scott and his wife Grace returned home after a weekend trip. They shared the home with their adult son Jimmy and his teenage daughter Rebecca. Clarence and Grace were supposed to stay with relatives in West Virginia until Monday morning. But on Sunday, Clarence woke up with a bad feeling and thought they needed to cut their trip short. As they got closer to their home on Catalina Drive in Newport News, Virginia, they stopped at Pierce's Pit Barbecue and ordered Jimmy takeout. When they returned to the house a few minutes later, the house was silent. Clarence noticed a holster and a clip for Jimmy's 22 pistol lying on the kitchen table. Concerned, he went into Jimmy's bedroom, where he saw his son in a chair, blood coming from his ears and nose. Clarence checked Jimmy's pulse several times, raised his eyelids, and finally told his wife, Hell, he's dead. Clarence later told reporters, it's hell to come back from a trip and find your son dead. Police arrived at the residence around 7 o'clock p.m., responding to a call of a suspicious death. Rebecca was not at home and her grandparents were not sure where she was, although they were certain she was with her boyfriend, Raymond Grantham, who Jimmy did not like. The age difference might have played a huge part in this, as Rebecca was only 16 and Raymond was 20. Investigators told Clarence to call them if Rebecca returned home. Rebecca showed up at the house at 5 o'clock the next morning with Raymond in tow. They were carrying a large bag of laundry, and Rebecca asked her grandfather if she could do laundry. Clarence promptly contacted the police as they had requested. Clarence later testified in court that as soon as he picked up the phone to call the police, Raymond hot-footed it out the door like he had ants in his pants. Clarence then told his granddaughter, You know your daddy is dead. Go out there and take a look in his room and see what a mess it is. Rebecca went into her father's room and when she came out, Clarence said she had water in her eyes, but he didn't know if she ever actually cried because she was arrested right after. Jimmy Scott and his daughter had lived with Clarence and Grace for 13 years, ever since Jimmy and Rebecca's mother, Clarissa, had a nasty divorce. At the time of Jimmy's murder, Rebecca was a sophomore in high school, where she was described as polite, soft-spoken, and withdrawn. Jimmy had not worked for many years as he was on disability. Clarence was retired from the Army, where he had been a first sergeant. Clarence had served in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, and had numerous awards for his shooting performance in the military. 
Jimmy had been involved in numerous political campaigns over the years, volunteering for many local politicians. He was very active in campaigning door-to-door, largely for Republican candidates. Jimmy was also very protective over candidates' signs, checking on them daily and replacing any that were stolen or vandalized. Jimmy was a frequent caller to the Newport News Police, reporting problems in his neighborhood. He had started a neighborhood watch program several years before his death and took an almost obsessive interest in doing nighttime patrols, often taking Rebecca with him. Jimmy was a large man who often had the beginnings of a beard and messy hair. He was said to be unkempt and spoke slowly, which scared some people, but those who knew him said he was very caring. A city councilwoman, Madeline McMillan, said he had a heart as big as all outdoors. Another former aspiring political candidate, Pat Taylor, met Jimmy during her run for city council. Pat also knew Rebecca and ran into the father and daughter a few weeks before Jimmy's death. Pat testified that all Rebecca could talk about was how unfair it was that her father would not allow her to see her boyfriend. During this time, Rebecca called social services, according to Jimmy's fiance. Jimmy told her Rebecca's friends had put Rebecca up to it. However, social services were called to the home several times, but apparently these were unsubstantiated claims because social services would not remove Rebecca from the home. Clarence said Jimmy never even whipped Rebecca. Jimmy's siblings also said their brother was being unfairly accused of abuse, and even if the allegations were true, murder was not the answer. Jimmy's sister even offered to let Rebecca live with her, but Rebecca refused. In May 1999, Rebecca ran away from home with Raymond. A week later, the couple had a serious car accident in North Carolina. Raymond's Ford Bronco rolled over and Rebecca was ejected through the passenger side window. She was seriously injured, requiring several surgeries before she could return home to Newport News. After the accident, a judge ordered Raymond to stay away from Rebecca for six months. However, despite Jimmy's objections and the legal order, Raymond presented Rebecca with an engagement ring, according to her grandfather. Clarence said Jimmy was trying to bring Rebecca up properly, but Rebecca had a mind of her own and didn't like Jimmy's rules. On the night before Jimmy's death, Raymond and Rebecca were at a football game. Jimmy paged his daughter and demanded she return home immediately. According to Raymond, Jimmy started beating Rebecca on the front steps. Rebecca told Raymond to drive off, and he did. On November 1st, 1999, Rebecca was Mirandized and questioned. Rebecca was reluctant to talk and said she did not want to implicate anyone and get them in trouble. However, Rebecca eventually started talking and made a statement. According to Rebecca, she had been discussing her father's murder for several months with other people. She and Raymond had offered money to a person named Sean to commit the act. Rebecca admitted the pot of money had eventually amounted to $1,500. Sean would not commit the murder, so she and Raymond turned to other sources. Rebecca claimed to have gang affiliations, so she called some of the individuals who also refused to do it. Regarding the night of the football game, Rebecca's version differed slightly from Raymond's. She agreed that they were out when her father paged her to return home immediately. Rebecca thought her father was going to hit her with a yardstick, so she ran up to her room, then left the house. 
When she returned, her father was on the computer. Rebecca had work the next day. Rebecca told investigators they had all reached their limit and she thought Halloween was the day Jimmy would die. Rebecca arrived home from work around 4.15 p.m. to find her grandparents out of town and her father asleep. She took two of her father's guns and extra bullets and laid them on the kitchen table. She admitted to knowing Raymond was coming over later. She did not know Raymond was bringing a friend James with him. When the two men came into the house, Raymond was wearing gloves and a blue ski mask. She handed him her dad's automatic pistol, but when he tried to use it, it wouldn't work. Raymond took the other gun and a pillow, and while James watched, he placed a pillow against Jimmy's head and fired one shot. Rebecca claimed she was in the dining room and heard the shot from there. The three of them left the house and went to the home of a man named Steve. They gave him the gun and pillow, and he allegedly disposed of them in the body of water behind his house. Patrick Campbell was a resident of the home and remembered seeing the three on the night of Halloween 1999, and one of them was carrying a pillowcase stuffed with items. He was not sure what was in the pillowcase, but found it the next day shoved into one of his cabinets. He did not see anyone throw anything into the pond behind his house, but did hear a large splash while the three were still there. After they left his residence, Raymond and Rebecca went to the home of one of Rebecca's friends, Mary Fuller. They ate dinner together, and then Rebecca went trick-or-treating with Mary and her young son. Mary said Rebecca did not have an appetite and acted as if something was wrong. However, Rebecca told Mary that her father was in West Virginia, and he had given her permission to be out with Raymond. Rebecca and Raymond were both charged with first-degree murder, use of a firearm, conspiracy to commit a felony, and solicitation to commit murder. At Raymond's trial, he denied any involvement in planning the murder and said that it was Rebecca and James's idea. He said they chickened out and left him to pull the trigger. However, James testified that Raymond had arrived to his place of employment on the afternoon of Jimmy's murder and said, Today is the day he's going to kill Rebecca's father. During Rebecca's trial, her mother, Clarissa, testified that Rebecca had been physically abused by her father for years. She reported that she had seen bruises on Rebecca numerous times, but social services would not do anything about it. Most shockingly, Rebecca was nine months pregnant at her trial and insinuated the baby was either Raymond's or her father's. According to one of her fellow inmates at Hampton Roads Regional Jail, Rebecca told her that she had been planning her father's murder for months. She taunted Raymond and James by telling them, you don't have the balls to kill my dad. Both Raymond and James went to her father's bedroom, and when the gun wouldn't fire, they took it back to Rebecca where she called them dumbasses because they didn't take the safety off. She snuck a different gun out of her father's closet, loaded it and handed it to Raymond, who was crying and shaking. James told him, Come on, you got to do it or the dad is going to beat her again and she'll lose the baby this time. 
Rebecca kept taunting Raymond, saying he just didn't have the balls. Raymond finally returned to Jimmy's bedroom and fired the weapon, while Rebecca was packing a bag to run away with them. Social services did not testify at Rebecca's trial to substantiate or deny the accusations that Rebecca had been abused by her father for years. There were two witnesses for the defense who testified they believed she had been abused. One of these was a social worker who said Rebecca was disconnected and lived in a fantasy world, which is often a sign of post-traumatic stress disorder. The other was a psychologist who said Rebecca had a low IQ along with the emotional maturity of someone nine or 10 years of age. He also said Rebecca drifted into a dissociative state. However, the prosecutor argued that Rebecca could have been experiencing PTSD because of her involvement with her father's murder. Rebecca was found guilty and sentenced to 18 years in prison. Her aunt and uncle delivered a statement in which they said the sexual abuse allegations were a further embarrassment to the family, and they called Rebecca a Judas, Benedict Arnold, a liar, and a thief. She gave birth to her child, who was taken in by her mother, Clarissa. Raymond Grantham was found guilty and received a sentence of 38 years in prison. He is still currently incarcerated, although Rebecca is no longer in prison. No information can be found about Rebecca, although it can be assumed she has married or changed her name. It appears she has not been arrested again. She was involved in a lawsuit against the Department of Corrections while she was still incarcerated. Rebecca and several others filed a lawsuit because of the deplorable conditions of the prison. Jimmy Scott was a remarkable man who was proud of his heritage. He was a descendant of the Powhatan tribe of Native Americans, as well as a descendant of Sergeant Sam Scott of the American Revolution. He was very involved with trying to find missing children by using the internet and was active with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He was also very involved in saving wolves. In 1975, on the other side of the country, another 16-year-old girl convinced her older boyfriend to kill both of her parents. Marlene Olive convinced her boyfriend, Charles David Riley, to kill her parents of Terra Linda, California. Like Raymond, Charles, or Chuck as he was known, was forbidden to see Marlene. Her parents believed he was leading Marlene down a dark and dangerous path. Marlene had been born in 1959 to an unmarried mother and was almost immediately adopted by Jim and Naomi Olive, who were a childless middle-aged couple. Marlene was raised until her early teens in Ecuador, where Jim worked for Tenneco and Gulf Oil. Marlene and her father were close, but she and Naomi had a very difficult relationship due to Naomi's alcoholism. When Jim lost his job in Ecuador, he moved the family back to the United States, settling on Terra Linda, California. Marlene was resentful over this and found it increasingly difficult to deal with her mother. Her mother had fallen into the habit of calling her a whore, comparing her to Marlene's unknown birth mother. To deal with this, Marlene settled into the drug culture and became obsessed with the occult. She began taking pills two years before her parents were killed. Enter Chuck Riley, 
an overweight high school graduate who fought to find a place in society. He became a drug dealer in an effort to become popular, and this is how he met Marlene. He was selling drugs one day on her high school campus and spotted her and quickly fell in love. For her part, Marlene resisted a relationship, citing Chuck's weight. Eventually, they worked out a trade, sex for drugs. The relationship continued for a while, even as Marlene's relationship with her mother spiraled ever more out of control. Finally, Marlene began to plan Naomi's murder with Chuck and discussed it with more of her friends. On June 21, 1975, the volcano of anger between Marlene and Naomi erupted. Marlene called Chuck and hissed, We've got to kill that bitch today. The two female members of the Olive family had an explosive argument, which ended with both of them screaming, I hate you. Under hypnosis, Chuck recalled the details of that day. He parked down the street and waited for Jim and Marlene to leave. Marlene had left Chuck a claw hammer to use on Naomi. Chuck remembered thinking Jim Olive was going to kill him if he saw him in the house again. But then he found the hammer and walked down the hallway to where Naomi lay napping. He told the arresting officer, I just hit her. I don't even remember anything after that. Chuck continued hitting her in the forehead with the hammer. The final blow was so forceful, the hammer lodged into her skull. Chuck was repulsed that he had to touch Naomi to pull the hammer out, and when he did, blood spurted everywhere. He said the blood was burning, so he had to wipe it off his hands. He picked up the hem of her dress to wipe his hands clean and realized Naomi was still alive. He said, she wouldn't die. She wouldn't die at all. Please, God, let her die. He stabbed Naomi in the chest with a steak knife, but she was still alive. He picked up a pillow to smother her with it and then heard the Olive family car pull up. Outside, Marlene warned her father if he went inside, he would die. Her father just laughed her off and went inside. He walked into the room where Chuck was standing over Naomi, and Jim finally saw the two of them. Jim started screaming, Oh my God, Naomi! Oh my God! Jim then turned to Chuck and started screaming that he was going to kill him. As Jim walked towards Chuck, Chuck fired his gun at Jim. He never even took it out of the gun bag, just fired it. He shot Jim at least four times. After Jim hit the floor, Chuck walked into the living room and sat in stunned silence. Marlene assured him everything was all right and they had sex. Afterwards, they robbed Marlene's parents, removing jewelry and cash and taking items out of Naomi's handbag. They cleaned up the blood they could, then went to the mall, talked to friends, and did more drugs and had sex. Later that night, they returned to Marlene's family home and began disposing of the bodies. They piled them into the family car and drove to an isolated area where hunters often barbecued poached deer. They placed Marlene's parents in a concrete fire pit, then placed branches several feet high on top of the bodies, pouring gasoline over the makeshift funeral pyre. They set it ablaze and left. The next morning, they returned to see that Naomi's body was almost completely cremated, but Jim's torso and head were virtually unscathed by the fire. 
The couple made a larger fire and then waited to make sure the remains were mostly gone. The olive's disappearance was not reported for a week when one of Jim's colleagues finally called the police to request a welfare check. The police sent foul play immediately and questioned Naomi for several hours. Her stories vary widely, but she maintained she had no idea what happened, just that her parents had gone to Lake Tahoe. Finally, one of her friends admitted that they knew what had happened and said the olives had been cremated in a deer pit. Chuck and Marlene were both arrested and charged with murder. In this regard, Marlene was lucky. As a juvenile, she was tried as a juvenile and only had to spend a short amount of time in prison. Chuck, on the other hand, was found guilty of capital murder and sentenced to die in the gas chamber at San Quentin. However, the U.S. Supreme Court later overturned the death penalty and his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Chuck Riley still remains incarcerated and his many attempts at parole have been for naught. Many attorneys agree it is because he continues to take no responsibility for the murders, blaming them on Marlene instead. Marlene only spent five years in prison and was released. However, life after prison has been harsh and she has been jailed many times for forgery and for passing hot checks. She was called the queen of a forgery ring in 1992 and was incarcerated. Interestingly enough, the reporter who covered this story for the LA Times was Michael Connolly, author of the Bosch series of books, as well as many others. The case of Rebecca Scott and Marlene Olive are examples of one of the most common reasons children kill their parents to break free from abuse, although there was no solid proof of this in Rebecca's case. They also both represent children who want to break free from controlling parents. Parasite accounts for approximately 2% of the homicides in the U.S. annually, with approximately 38% of these occurring in the southern U.S. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at TrueCrimeFanClubPod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. <laughs>